Okay, this week we finish up the teaching on biblical perfection. The first week we looked at what it is, what it isn't. Uh, we also looked at some examples of people who the Bible called righteous or perfect or blameless or upright, all these different things. Last week we looked at some objections. What's uh, one scripture we looked at last week that was an objection to this biblical doctrine of perfection? All right. Say that again, brother. Romans 3. Romans 3, that's right. Romans 3. We'll look at that. Romans 3.23, Romans 3.10 through, I think, 15. Look at those passages. People oftentimes will use to say you're either born a sinner or that you can't stop sinning, you have to keep on sinning. And we saw the word sin there. Obviously, most of you already know this from the English. It's in the past tense. It's not presuming anything upon the future. It's in the past tense. And we saw that we need, we're still in need of the glory of God because of our past sins. And because we're not, we're not uh, glorified yet. And those past sins can be reestablished if we go back to our sins. What else did we look at last week? When it comes to objections. Yes, Brother Josh. First, first John 1 John 1.8, that's right. And we looked at the first John 1 John 1.8, we saw that uh, Gnosticism, the teachings of it, and John coming against it is all throughout the book of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. We see that he comes against different things that Gnostics taught, whether it's uh, God, the God of the Old Testament being inferior or being evil, whether it's the flesh being itself being sinful, or whether Christ didn't come in the flesh, or they had some kind of special gnosis that no one else had, special knowledge that no one else had. And John refuted these things. And so we see 1 John 1 is talking to the Gnostics who would say that even though they were sinning, they were not sinning, that they had no sin. And that's what 1 John 1 is talking about. It's not talking about we have to always be in sin, which contradicts the rest of 1 John and the rest of the Bible. Anything else you remember from last week that you want to mention? Okay. God does not command the impossible. That's right. If God commanded the impossible, he would be a vicious dictator. He'd be just like Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's a picture of the Antichrist. Pharaoh told him to make bricks without straw, which is impossible. And so when you demand the impossible and punish someone for not accomplishing that impossible thing, you become a dictator, a vicious dictator, not a benevolent ruler or king or creator which God is in the scriptures. Okay, let's move on to this week. We're going to look at um, a bunch of different passages that people like to use to support this doctrine of perpetual sinfulness, this doctrine of unbiblical imperfection or sinful imperfection. Romans 7 is one that, uh, one of the besides 1 John 1 is probably one that's used more than anything else. Now, I'm not going to do a deep study of Romans 7 this morning because we've already done that. Uh, we did that and we looked at the doctrine of sin and doctrine of man. And so I'll refer you to that video, but I'm just going to touch on a couple of things real quick just to give you a quick summary of it. Um, if you, after you watch the video on it, or even before you watch the video on it that's uploaded on YouTube, I would encourage you to read Romans 6 through 8 as a whole. Okay, to get and understand what Romans 7 is actually saying. 
In fact, you could really just read Romans 7, 1 through 25 and get to what he's saying. Most people just read verses 14 through 25 to suppose, uh, to propose and impose this doctrine upon the scripture. This, this passage is not referring to a converted person. It's referring to an unconverted person who's under conviction of the law of God. It is not referring to the Apostle Paul as he writes it. If so, he would be contradicting his own testimony about himself and other places in Scripture, as well as condemning himself with his own writings. I mean, the Bible says that holy men wrote down the Scriptures. So he, he couldn't be in this place of Romans 7, 14-25 while he's writing it. Otherwise, Romans wouldn't be in the Bible. It's that simple. This is not the normal Christian life. If someone says it is, then they're not converted. And I think verses 5 through 6 really summarize what he's trying to articulate throughout the rest of chapter 7. It says this, Romans 7, 5 through 6. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Those two verses summarize this difficult 14 through 25 part that people oftentimes either misunderstand or they twist it on purpose to their own destruction. But once again, I would refer you to reading the whole Romans 6 through 8 together and also to... Uh, watch the video that's already on YouTube about that. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. I know that seems like a very weird verse to go to, but people use this verse sometimes to justify perpetual sinfulness. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. And you can write a slash next to that because another verse in 2 Chronicles is the same exact verse, 2 Chronicles 6.36. So they're both the same thing. Same issue with both of them. Let's just read what it says in 1 Kings 8.46. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Let's just stop right there. So it says when they sin, so it's almost supposing they're going to sin, for there is no one who does not sin. That's also supposing that you're going to sin and continue to sin. Okay, Now, the King James, I know Brother Tracy has his, it says, if they sin, not when they sin. And that's actually translated properly. So it should be, if they sin. Okay, now let's just take the second part of that first part of 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Now, does that make any sense? Why would it say, if they sin, if they're supposing everyone sins? Um... To understand this scripture, I went to the Hebrew, and I'm, I don't really know much about Hebrew. I'm not good with Hebrew. I'm good with Greek. Um, but in Hebrew, there's a commentator named Adam Clark, who's a Methodist, and he asserts this is not a very good translation of the words. He says it should be translated like this. If they shall sin against thee, for there's no man that may not sin. Okay? It's a very important distinction. Because what it's really saying here is if they sin against you, which says there's a possibility they could sin against you, right? 
And then it says, for there's no one who may not sin, which says you still have the ability to sin. This makes perfect sense. And this is what he's saying that Hebrew says. And I'm not, I don't know Hebrew, but uh, I found Adam Clark's commentary to be edifying at times. And uh, I, I think he's, he's accurate on this. He says the same thing about 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles 6.36. And so we see at the beginning of this verse, if that translation is proper, that the if is a conditional statement, once again, meaning that it could happen or it could not happen. It may or may not happen. And the second part is simply asserting what I've already asserted to you many times throughout this series, that there's always a possibility of sinning because there isn't a man on earth who lacks free will, who lacks the ability to sin, and who isn't tempted. But even if the New King James translators got it right, this is not talking about all people everywhere of all time. If you look at the passage here, it's referring to the Israelites. Okay? It's referring to them. It's not referring to all people. I liken, use, even if the New King, James, New King James Version translators got it right, I liken using this to oppose, impose it upon everybody the same way people use Genesis chapter 6 and impose it upon everybody, which says um, that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Now, we don't impose that upon everybody at all time. Because it's referring to the people at the time of Noah. And we know that even in that time, there was an exception. His name was Noah. Because he was perfect in his generations. He walked with God. And so even if he were to suppose the New King James Version translators got it right, it's not talking about all people of all time. It's, talking about, it's not even talking about all Gentiles. It's talking about the Israelites of Solomon's time. And this is actually part of the prayer of Solomon during the dedication not only that, even if it, if, if it is right and, the, and it's referring to the Israelites, it's still not saying what people suppose it's saying. Because it says this in verse 47. Yet when they come to themselves, talking about the Israelites, come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their hearts, with all their souls, in the land of their enemies, who led them away captive, and pray to you toward the land which you gave to the Father, the city which you have chosen, the temple which I have built for your name. Then, here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer, and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all of their transgressions where they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who have took, took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. And so we see, this is actually, if it's talking about the Israelites, it's talking about a future thing, because it wasn't they weren't in captivity then. Solomon was king over the whole nation of Israel. It wasn't even split into two kingdoms yet. That didn't happen until his sons came along. And so it can't be talking about the Israelites even presently. And we do know that later on, that what happened to the Israelites? They didn't get taken away captive. And then eventually, God did bring them back. Okay, so, but if it's saying that, that the Israelites are destined to sin, and they can't help but to sin every single day, then how can they return to God with all their heart and with all their soul? Because they'd have to always be in sin. And so we can see that even in this passage right here, 
people are misinterpreting it. It's possible there's a mistranslation of it. I'm willing to, to lean on Adam Clark's knowledge on this, but even if it isn't a mistranslation, we see that it's not saying what people suppose it's saying. All right, let's turn to Job chapter 15. Job is right before Psalms. Job chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. Verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman, that he could be righteous. If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man? who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Now, I think some of us have probably quoted part of verse 16 in the open air. And I think that's true of a lot of people. But the question because is this a universal claim for all people of all kinds? Well, the first thing I want to point out to you, go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. And I want you to see who's saying these words. So then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said. Okay, so when we're talking about historical narratives, which Job is, we have to find out who's saying what. Okay, Not everything the Pharisees said is what God wants you to do. Not everything that Job's friends said is what God wants you to do. In fact, if you were to go to the end of the story, I'm sure most of you read all the way through Job, you'll see that God said that Job's friends did not speak of him what is right. In fact, let's just, let's just look at it real quick. So you can have assurance in your heart about that. Job chapter 42 and verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, and the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, who said these words we're looking at, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That right there, friends, calls into question every single thing Eliphaz and his two friends said. Everything. It doesn't mean they can't say anything that's right, but does call into question everything they said. Especially when God said about Job in the beginning, as we saw in the first teaching of the series, that Job is righteous, that he's blameless, that there's no one like him on the earth. And Job maintained that stance, that God... Uh, said in the beginning, he maintained that throughout Job. And his friends maintained the very opposite. So who's right? God and Job? Or Eliphaz and his two friends? Well, it's got to be God and Job. So we have here this Calvinistic type friend of Job, even though Calvinism wasn't around yet, obviously. The Calvinistic friend of Job is saying these things. But Job was declared righteous at the beginning, and he maintained his righteousness all throughout the book of Job. And so, when we say these things, we can't take them as authoritative uh, for positive doctrine for us. Okay, We can take it as negative doctrine, that they were wrong, because God said they were wrong, but not as positive doctrine, that uh, this is what we should believe, when the rest of Scripture completely contradicts us. It says right there, it says, what is man that he can be pure? Well, didn't God say Job was pure? Didn't God say Noah was pure? Well, that's how they can be pure, Eliphaz. And, who is, and he who is born of woman, that he can be righteous. So, we saw in the first teaching that God calls many people righteous throughout the scripture. So, we must take God's word on it, 
of thus saith the Lord, and prophets and holy men's words on it, above and beyond Eliphaz, the Calvinistic, ungodly person's word. Okay? And you'll, you'll find, as you're reading through Job, you have to make sure that you're paying attention to who's saying what. Because there's actually other ones too, I believe, that I'm not going to talk about today, but uh, uh, that are doing the same thing. Uh, Job 20, 25 and verse 4 is the same thing. How can, this is Bildad, this is one of Eliphaz's friends. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Well, God tells us how to be pure. Tell us how to be holy. We're looking at it today. Uh, how how we can be holy, how we can be pure. Okay, let's go on to James chapter 3. <clears throat> we're really going to focus on verse 2. But we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 12, just to kind of get the context here of what James is saying. James 3 and verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us. And we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large, are driven by fierce winds. They are turned by a very small rudder, which wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. See how a great see how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles a whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren... These things ought not be so. The spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Okay, so there's a couple of different verses in here that people like to use to support perpetual sinning in the Christian's life. The first one is verse 2. For we all stumble in many things, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And then you see in verse um, 6, talking about the tongue, it sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. And then verse 8, no man can tame the tongue as an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, the first objection people give when they're coming against doctrine of biblical perfection is in verse 2, that we all stumble in many things. The first thing I want to point out to you is the word stumble here does not necessarily mean sin. It could mean a mistake. It could mean an error. It can also mean sin, but it doesn't necessarily mean sin. So it could be saying here, we all make errors, make mistakes in many things. If anyone does not make a mistake in word, he is perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. And it would make sense because verse 1 says, let not many of you become teachers. And what do teachers do? They speak. They use their mouth a lot. 
And by using your mouth a lot, if you're not keeping a tight bridle on your tongue, you might make an error, you might make a mistake, you might sin with your tongue, and if you're teaching a lot of people while that happens, you just heaped upon yourself stricter judgment. This is why, friend, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is going off on a tangent here for a second for verse 1, but I, I can't uh, stress enough that let not many of you be teachers. There's so many teachers these days, so many, and they don't pay attention. From what I can see, they don't pay attention to this one verse. I don't take teaching God's Word to be a light thing. It's a very heavy thing. It'd be a lot easier for me on Judgment Day if I had never taught a thing about God's Word. So there's a lot of pressure involved in teaching God's Word. Both the inventions of things like YouTube and Facebook, it seems like everybody wants to be a teacher. Well, make sure God's called you. Because there is a stricter judgment to be had. So this word stumble doesn't necessarily mean sin, although it could mean sin. I don't think it really matters either way, to be honest, because I still think it's the same thing is still there. Whether it means sin or not, if you're able to bridle your tongue, you can keep your whole body in check. You can keep your whole body in check. But when he says, for we all stumble in many things, what does he mean by that? Well, if I were to say about America... We are a wicked nation. We kill 3,000 babies every day. Am I talking about myself? But aren't I in the nation of America? Aren't I a part of this nation? I sure am. And he's talking to people who uh, he's associating himself with. And if you were to to go back to James 1.1, you'd see he's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel who are scattered abroad. So I don't think he's including himself in stumbling in all things, and many things, as if he can't control his tongue. Because if James is saying about himself that he can't control his tongue, then what does he say about himself in verse 1? That he just heaped on stricter judgment for himself. He just condemned himself. He's saying, listen, I'm a teacher, but I can't control my tongue. Because we all stumble in many things. No, he says, if you, can get, if you can control your tongue, you are a perfect man. If we were to say this about James, that he's stumbling with his tongue all the time, are we also saying about him that his tongue is set on fire by hell? As it says in verse 6, is he one of the ones he's referring to? That his tongue is set on fire by hell? If it is, then why is he teaching God's word? Why is, he, why is the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write down God's Word? Are we to say about him that his tongue yields both sweet and bitter water, or fresh and salty water at the same time, when he says it ought not be so? How dare he be a hypocrite and teach God's Word when he's doing the very things he's telling them not, he ought, they ought not to be doing themselves? So when James is going through here, I'm not assuming he's talking about himself. I'm assuming he's talking about his readers. And he's including himself in the we because he's a Jew, just like them. And oftentimes when people do that, they include the we in it. If, I, if a preacher were to say, we need to stop sinning, I'm not going to assume that preacher is saying that he's still in sin. 
I'm going to assume he's living holy when he's saying that. He's telling everyone else to stop sinning, whoever it is that is sinning. And James 1.26, we see James says, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceive his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Are we to believe about James that he's saying about his own religion that it's useless? So some people would have you believe. We see that pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, if no one can keep themselves unspotted, then everyone's religion is useless. Everyone's religion is worthless. Everyone's religion is impure and defiled. But are we really to believe that about James? Is James' religion useless? What about James 5.16? The prayers of a righteous man are effective, they're fervent, they avail much. Are we to assume about James' prayers, because he's including himself in this in verse 2, that his prayers are ineffective? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. The tongue itself, you just say, small muscle in your body, right there. That tongue itself is not wicked in and of itself. Just like the rest of your body, in and of itself, is not wicked. Now, you can use it for wickedness. And I would say most people do use it for wickedness. Proverbs 18.21 says the power of life and death is in the tongue. You can bring life to someone by preaching the word of God to them. By bringing rebuke to them. By telling them the gospel and how to be saved. You can bring death to someone by saying things you ought not say. By being a hypocrite with the things you say while proclaiming to be a Christian the whole time. That can bring death to someone's soul. So there is, you need to beware, friends, that there is power in your tongue. Life and death power in your tongue. So you need to, as James says, keep a tight ring, a tight bridle on your tongue, lest your religion become useless. But to assume you can't control the tongue based upon what James 3 says is ridiculous. Especially when he said it ought not be so. And he seemed, and when he's talking in the verse 11 and 12, that uh, does the same spring send forth fresh and bitter water? Uh, the word fresh there is actually the Greek word glucose. It actually means sweet water and bitter water are the same opening. Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Can a spring yield both salt and fresh water? He's talking about impossibilities. Things that absolutely cannot happen. And so, if your tongue is bringing forth wickedness, it's because you have a wicked heart, and you're not going to bring forth goodness. And we looked at this last week when Brother Joshua at the end asked a question about Matthew 7, and I brought Matthew 12, which says, either make the tree good or it's in its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. Now, who is that good man if no one can control the tongue? Who is that man with that good heart if no one can control the tongue? We see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Peter exhorting Jewish people as well. 
For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if you can't refrain your tongue from speaking evil, then the Lord's face is against everybody. Who are these righteous people he is talking about? Who are these ears whose prayers he hear if you can't but utter one prayer without speaking a wicked thing from your tongue? So when we look at these scriptures like James 3, 2, although people like to make them more difficult than they are, by isolating passages, you'll see if you look at the whole council of scripture, it's not so. Proverbs chapter 10, and verse 20 says this, The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Choice silver. Is your tongue choice silver? Could God say that about your tongue? Well, if he can't, you're not righteous. You're not righteous. And I would never assume about James, the half-brother of Jesus, the first bishop of the Church of Jerusalem, who's writing the epistle of James. That's true about him. That God's against him while he's writing down the scripture. Doesn't make any sense to me. Let's move on to Isaiah 64 6. <clears throat> Another stronghold of the devil against the truth of God's word. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. You notice that most of these are just like random verses from out of nowhere. Like the first Kings passes, Isaiah 64 passes. We'll look at Ecclesiastes 7 20 here in a minute. And then people just, they quote them verbatim like they it was one of their memory verses but how many people take a random verse from Isaiah or Ecclesiastes or First King and memorize it <clears throat> but people repeat this not because they went to the scriptures and said well I'm going to write that on a new card and I'm going to memorize it it's because they're hearing wicked false teachers beat these things into their heads and they're just receiving like oh I'm not going to check the context of it at all so let's read Isaiah 64 6 but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So the, the word we often hear about filthy rags, it's like a woman's menstrual pad. That's what he means by filthy rags. So it's talking about, in context here, the wicked, rebellious Jewish nation. Their righteous deeds, their religious things that they were doing, giving sacrifices, praying, holding fast to all the Sabbath and all the festivals. These righteous things they were doing were filthy rags in God's sight. Why? Because they were continuing in rebellion and sin. I would liken to it in modern day of someone going to church, praying every day, reading their Bible every day, maybe even going out evangelizing all the while they have a lot of willful known, or even just a little bit, one willful known, known sin in their life. Would you think that God would receive religious things from someone as a acceptable sacrifice 
while they're in sin? Willful, known sin? Of course not. But that's who Isaiah is talking about here. So if someone aligns themselves with Isaiah 64, 6, and therefore the wicked religious Israelites, they must also align themselves with what eventually will happen to the Israelites. God's punishment, God's destruction, and then God's captivity to the Babylonian people. But most people won't do that. They think that they can live like Isaiah says the Israelites are at that point in time and still, well, I'm still going to go to heaven. What they'll say. If someone aligns himself with the Israelites in this verse, they are saying that they are blatant hypocrites. Not only that, they're saying they can't help but to be that way according to their own interpretation of this verse. They are saying that they're doing righteous things are filthy rags before God because it's all tainted with sin. Imagine if you couldn't go out evangelizing without sinning. You couldn't read your Bible without sin, without it all being tainted with sin. You couldn't pray without it all being tainted with sin. Such a person's church going, praying, reading Bible, evangelistic efforts is all worthless to God. God may use it in some way in someone else's life, but it's all worthless to God. And if this is true about somebody, then I would encourage the actual saints who they're fellowship with to separate themselves from them. That's what I would encourage them to do. I would tell a person that God doesn't even hear their prayers or pay attention to them. I would tell them that the devil knows the Bible better than they do, and that their Bible reading condemns them even more if they have no plans of obeying it, or don't think they can. I would tell them to stop evangelizing until they actually repented themselves. Because how can you call someone to repentance if you haven't first repented yourself? In Ezekiel chapter 14, in verses 12 through 20, we see Ezekiel having a word from the Lord, from, and uh, he, he says this in verse 12. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me, talking about the people in the land, by persistent unfaithfulness, so people say they're doing, Isaiah 64, 6, I will stretch out my hand against that, I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Now we've talked about Noah, we've talked about Job, we didn't talk about Daniel. Where you have Daniel being associated with Noah and with Job. And calling him righteous. And he's saying, these people are so wicked that, you know, we go back to the story of Abraham and Lot. And, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God is having a discussion with Abraham about why he won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he found this many righteous people. And God's saying here, I mean, he's obviously lifting these three men up as some of the most righteous men who ever lived. He's saying, this place was so wicked, even if these three men were in it, it wouldn't save them. It would only save those three men. By what? By their filthy rags? Did their filthy rags save them? No, their righteousness delivered them. Which means their righteousness is not filthy rags. It also means your righteousness does not have to be filthy rags. Acts chapter 10. Brother, could you give me that verse again? Please? Yeah, it's Ezekiel 14, verses 12, I only read verses 12 but it's through 14, but it's 12 through 20, it says it over and over again. Acts chapter 10, 
verses 1 through 4. Speaking of uh, Cornelius here, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius! And when he observed him, he was afraid. and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So I wonder, if this is a memorial before God, and God sent an angel to speak to him, are his righteous deeds filthy rags? In the midst of his being a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms, righteous things, generously to people? No, God saw it as a memorial. He saw it as a good thing. And then in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every, every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, was Cornelius' righteousness filthy rags? Was God accepting that? When in verse 6 of Isaiah 64, he did not accept it? No. It was acceptable to God. It wasn't filthy rags. Not according to Peter, not according, not according to the angel who God sent, unless it was a false angel. Philippians 4.18. The uh, church of Philippi sent an offering, financial offering, to help out. Let's see what uh, God says through the Apostle Paul here. Philippians 4.18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Does that sound like filthy rags to you? I guess their offering was not a filthy rag to God or to Paul. It was a sweet-smelling aroma. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. People who hold to this interpretation of Isaiah 64, 6 would have you believe that all your worship this morning was a filthy rag before God. I hope it's not true. But mine wasn't, that's for sure. Hebrews 11, 4. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. The hall of faith here, talking about Abel. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So God says that his offering was excellent, and that by giving this offering, he was righteous. Hebrews 13, 16. Paul's exhortation to them, But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God is not well pleased with filthy rags. But he is well pleased with sacrifices and doing good to people out of a pure heart. A pure heart. 1 John 3, 7-8. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is the devil. So, if by doing righteousness, we become righteous like Jesus is righteous, but all our righteousness is filthy rags, then what does it say about Jesus' righteousness? 
It's also filthy rags. Are we really willing to say that about the Lord? No, we can do righteousness. We don't have to be engaged in filthy rags. Revelation 19, 7 through 8. Talking about the bride. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in filthy rags, dirty and dull. For it is the filthy linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. It says and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if all the acts, righteous acts of the saints are filthy rags, according to their interpretation of Isaiah 4, 6, then what are we to say about this? I mean, is, or, is, is God walking down the aisle, metaphorically speaking, to his son, a woman dressed in filthy rags? Now, what colors are dressed usually on wedding days? White, clean, and bright. If my bride would have walked down the aisle with a filthy rag on, I would have been offended. If I would have been offended, how much more is God offended? When someone tries to walk down the aisle to Jesus and be married to him wearing filthy rags. Much more, if you ask me. Okay, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Another one of these verses people try to build their positive doctrines upon. Vain. It says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. One thing you must keep in mind, once again, in interpreting verses is knowing what kind of literature it is. Ecclesiastes is a book of, that looks at life under the sun. Life from a human perspective, apart from God. So you must keep that in mind when reading this book. And once again, in this verse, just like in the 1 Kings and the 2 Chronicles verse, Adam Clark says that the same issue is going on here with the second part of this verse. That it's saying there's not a just man on earth who does good and may not sin. So it's saying no matter how righteous or good you become, you still have the ability to sin. There's still a chance you could sin. So don't get puffed up. Think of yourself like you ought to think of yourself. Think of yourself in truth, knowing that temptation is there. The devil's a lion prowling around, looking who he might devour. And so, in other words, no matter how righteous you become, no matter how good you do, you're still able to commit sin. You must, therefore, you must guard your heart and mind from sinning. This is not saying that there isn't anyone on earth now or in the past who hasn't been righteous or didn't sin. We have clearly seen that throughout the other people we've looked at, throughout the rest of Scripture. Of course, on top of that, we do believe that there's never been a man alive, or who has lived, who has gone his whole life without sinning, except for Jesus Christ. But the interpretation people give to this verse, uh, not only is improper because of the rest of the Scripture, because of what's found in this book itself. Look at the chapter 7 and verse 15. He says, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. Well, how is that possible? There is no one who did righteous. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. And if you go to chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, 
Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Now we all know the last two verses of Ecclesiastes, to fear God and keep his commandments. So their interpretation of Ecclesiastes 7.20 once again has failed. And there's another thing I want to address here, the uh, last part of our objections here, this idea of um, it's prideful to say you have no sin in your life. There's a false humility going on within Christendom, people who say they're Christians, where they think it's humility to say, oh, I can't stop sinning. I'm just a sinner, just a wretch. I'm still a wretch. I'm always going to be a wretch. I'm just a worm, and I'm not good at all. And they think it's humble to say that. Well, says who? Who says that's humility? Who says it's prideful to say you have no sin in your life right now? Who says that? Where does the Bible say that? Isn't it humility to tell the truth about yourself? That's true humility. To know the truth about yourself and tell it. That's true humility. Isn't it humble to say, I have sinned in the past, and I deserve hell for it. I currently have no sin in my life and plan to never sin again by the grace and help of God. Yet... I still have the ability to sin and could sin, which is why I will continue to be watchful, pray, read, study, etc. That's true humility. That's not pride. That's humility. And this is the epitome of pride right here. I have never obeyed God. I can't obey God. And I have no plans to obey God since it's impossible to obey God. That's pride. That's not humility. That's pride. That stinks of pride. It's a stench in God's nostrils. So I want someone to get you with this false humility. Not to say you don't have sin in your life currently and you're planning to never do it again. Well, it's still a possibility you could sin. And you're planning to do it by the grace and help of God. Let anyone tell you that's pride. That's not pride. That's humility. Okay, so how do we live this? I've been talking a lot about the doctrine of holiness and what it is and what it isn't and all the different verses people used to come against it. But how do we live it? I mean, that's the real nitty-gritty thing when you get down to here is how do we live it? Because if I tell you to, I'm blue in the face, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And I'll tell you how. It's not going to help you very much. I tell Malachi, Malachi, you can, you can fix that car. You can rebuild that engine. But I don't give him a book. I don't give him someone to help him along. He's never going to accomplish it. The first thing we must do to be able to live this life that the Bible tells us to live, commands us to live, and threatens to punish us for all eternity if we don't live, you must realize that we're going to keep on getting tempted. We must realize that. You must have proper expectations. Knowing this will help us to remember to keep our guard up. Don't let someone tell you that holiness is a one-time choice. It's a multiple, everyday choice to live holy not a one-time choice. There's another twisting of this doctrine going around out there in Christianity that says that if you ever sin after you've repented of sin, then you didn't have a true repentance. It's really another form of Calvinism. or another form of Pete that says that if you go back to sin, you were never saved in the first place. It's not true. You must continue in that. Because you repent of a sin you've committed in the past, that means you're not going to be tempted to do it again and that you may not fall in the future. There's still a possibility. Otherwise, the devil wouldn't bother tempting you. 
He's not a fool. Not in that sense, anyway. So he must realize that we're going to keep on being tempted. And number two, he must come to the realization that every temptation can be overcome. Every single one can be overcome. So many people, they get the first point. They'll even get some of the points I'm going to say after it. But the second point, they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't believe it. And if you don't believe you can overcome every temptation, you never will. You never will. As the old saying goes, as a man thinks, so is he. You must succeed at these first two points. Plus the fine temptation. It's an opportunity presented to the mind to disobey God or to overcome sin and obey God. See, people always usually just look at the negative side of temptation. It's like as if it's only a, it's only an opportunity to disobey God. No, it's an opportunity to obey God, to overcome. And that's the way we should look at it. This is an opportunity to show God once again that I love Him and I hate sin. That's what it is. Temptation is not causation. Temptation is influence. It's not causation. It's influence. And it's definitely not a sin to be tempted. Because if it is, you just call Jesus a sinner. Temptation is an opportunity presented to the mind to obey God, and overcome the temptation, or to disobey God and give in. To have victory or to have defeat. Here's some of the sources of temptation in your life. The world outside of you. External temptation. All around you. Inside of you. The flesh. Sometimes it's things you've done in the past that try to creep back into your life. If your memory tries to remind you of these things. Sometimes it's a natural desire you have. The temptation to fulfill in an unnatural way. You know, we all have a desire to eat, to drink. And most of us, unless you're called to be a eunuch, will have a desire to be with the opposite sex someday. And all those three of those things can be fulfilled in a natural way, a lawful way, or an unnatural and a wicked way. So it can come from outside of you, inside of you, and it can come from spiritual forces. Wicked spiritual forces. Those are the three sources of temptation. <laughs> and then there's four entry points into your life. Temptation. There's, there's eyes. And ears. That's how the outside temptation gets into your life. Eyes and ears. Why well, you need to guard your eyes. Guard your ears. Pay attention to what you look at. Pay attention to what you listen to. You know, there's lots of immodesty out there, friends. And when you see it... You know, when I first moved here, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, the family down the ridge, one of the first things that impressed me about the young men who were involved in it, and then when you see an immodest woman, they would turn their back on her. They would turn their back on her. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that, but you ought to be like Job in 31.1. Job 31 said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look lustfully at a woman. And so we're, we're to control our eyes, what we're looking at, on TV, in the world. Everything you see is wickedness all around you. Paying on what you, you listen to, because it will affect you. If you can guard your eyes and guard your ears, you're, you're taking away one of those sources of temptation into your life. This will make it easier for you to live holy. And you have, the, you have the, your memory of past sins. Unfortunately, um, it's in the past. We can't do anything about that now. We can't get rid of that. But you can ask God to cleanse your heart and cleanse your mind and cleanse your conscience. 
and help you to forget about those things. But they will come up sometimes. I know in the past, especially when I first became a Christian, um, you know, I, I had lots of girlfriends in the past, did wicked things to them, and I'd turn the radio on and a song would come on. It reminded me of them all of a sudden. You know, different things like that. And so, you know what? I stopped putting that station on. I stopped putting that. I stopped listening to that song. Because I don't want that temptation to come into my life. And the other entry point is just from unseen spiritual forces bringing suggestions to you. It all, I know we have defined sin, but all sin is giving into temptation. That's all it is. Giving into it. You know, Genesis 4, 6 through 7, so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. And that's what you got to do, friend. You need to rule over sin. Its desire is for you. It lies at the door. It wants to take you down. But you should rule over it. If, if God can say that to Cain, he's saying the same thing to us. Same thing to us. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that Jesus might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. And then jump over to chapter 14, and verses 15 to 16. Or verses, I'm sorry, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, not 14. Chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is made just like us. Neither us nor Jesus were born sinners or born with sinful nature. He's just like us. He was tempted just like us, except he overcame every single time. He ruled over it. And that's why he's able to help us. You know, it's good to have good examples in life. If you want to overcome sin, find a good example. Someone who has overcome sin and ask them how they did it. Then do what they do, and you'll get what they got. Overcoming sin. If you want to overcome sin in this life, never go to someone who thinks that repentance is not necessary for salvation, who thinks you can't overcome sin in this life, and who sins every day and plans to you for the rest of his life. Never ask that person about how to overcome sin. They don't know. They don't think it's even possible. Jesus, of course, is the best example, because he never sinned. But we can find grace and help in our time of need. But we must come to him, as it says in chapter 4. We must come to him in order to get the needed grace and help. It's not a shameful thing, friends, to be tempted and to cry out to Jesus. That's not a shameful thing. To be tempted and cry out to Jesus out loud for help. That's a very humbling thing. But it's a very necessary thing at times. And if it takes that to help you overcome sin, then by all means do it. Don't let pride hold you back. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. 
Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a very important part. I mean, a lot of times we go right to verse 13, but that verse 12 is very important. Don't think you can't fall. Don't think you're invincible. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Every temptation you've ever experienced or will experience or have experienced it right now, someone else has experienced it or is going through it. Don't have this woe is me pity attitude that no one understands what I'm going through. No, someone does. Even if there's no person you know who understands it, God understands it. Jesus understands it. Jesus can help you through it. No matter what your temptation is to sin, God understands. It's not an uncommon thing. It's nothing new. Not only that, but God is faithful to not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. Ability beyond what you're able. He also provides a way out of every temptation that you may be able to bear it. It's kind of like being in a building and a fire happens. The fire is temptation. And then the exit sign lights up. Bing. What do you do? Do you stay in the fire or do you run out the exit door? You run out the exit door. He provides a way out every single time. You just got to look for it. He'll sit there and say, oh, the fire around me. Look for the exit sign. He provides the way out. He does. Don't wait for the sprinkler system to come on. It may not happen. Run for the exit. Of course, if you foolishly lead yourself into some kind of temptation that you shouldn't have, don't expect God to give you some supernatural ability to overcome it or provide some special way out. The way to overcome it, the way to get out of that is not get it in the first place. There's no way I, as a man of God, with my past, would walk into a porn convention and hand out Bibles. There's no way I would do that. Yet these guys from the Triple X Church think it's okay. I seriously doubt that. I seriously doubt that. I wouldn't do that. So God expects you not to lead yourself in such situations. That is the way out. That is the way to bear it. James 4, and verse 7, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you dull-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Overcoming sin takes humility. It takes you submitting to God, not trying to resist the devil in your own strength, but submitting to God first, Humbling yourself in that way. And if you have any sin, you need to repent of it. You need to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. And don't be double-minded. You need to submit yourself to God. And then you resist the devil. And then he will flee from you. That's the order it goes in, friends. Submit to God. 
Or you're just a devil, he will flee from you. People skip over that first part a lot of times. They try to do it in their own strength and they end up failing. If you cry out to God, he gives you the supernatural strength you need to overcome it. Then and only then will we properly resist the devil and be successful. And, and truthfully, friends, the devil will, may not flee the first time. Don't think because you submitted to God and resist the devil, he's going to flee right away. It may happen that way, but it may not. It may take several times. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? Three temptations before the devil left him. Three. And I'm not saying that the devil is actually the one that tempts you every single time, because you may never be tempted by the devil. But when I'm saying that, I'm referring to the spiritual wicked forces that are under his leadership. Okay, so let's turn to Matthew 4. Jesus' example. Let's look at that for a second here. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Now Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now when a tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Then Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So Jesus overcame the devil through the word of God. The word of God. And notice here, the devil even tried to use the word of God against Jesus. What a fool. I guess he thought he knew the word of God better than Jesus. But since Jesus knew the word of God and had hidden in his heart, he did not sin against his father. And once again, it took three times for the devil to flee. Jesus even endured temptations that we won't have to endure. We go back to Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, says that he tempted at all points like us. But he went even beyond that. We can't turn stones into bread. We don't have the temptation when we're hungry. Can you imagine that? So you get done preaching for six hours at an event and we're really hungry. It's like, man, John, that rock looks really good. <laughs> I'm going to change to a loaf of sourdough bread and slap some butter on it. <laughs> That'd be tempting. It wouldn't be tempting. Wouldn't have to pay any money at Cracker Barrel. Wouldn't have to do anything like that. Just get some stones and make them into bread. And Jesus got done fasting 40 days and 40 nights. I'm talking about five, six hours of preaching. 40 days and 40 nights. It was a real temptation for him. But he overcame it. Just by obeying Satan, he would have God. Remember that. Go to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, 
you receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God could not be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so we see here that blessed man is the one who endures temptation, not the one who gives into it over and over again. Quick uh, tangent question here. If God can't be tempted by sin, does not tempt anyone, how can he ordain or decree every single sin? How is that possible? If God can't be tempted or tempt anyone, how can he ordain or decree every sin, let alone one sin? And notice here, these desires that someone has, that they're drawn away by and enticed, now these desires in and of themselves are not sin. They're temptations. They're enticements. But they're not sin themselves. It only becomes sin when the desire has been conceived it gives birth to sin. So when you give in to this desire, that's when it becomes sinful. Someone can be tempted in their mind by a wicked thought and not have sinned themselves. Because they have not given in to the thought, they have not submitted to the thought, they have not sinned. And things can pop into your head involuntarily. I'm not talking about sitting around and dwelling upon something. I'm talking about you're driving down the road and some kind of evil force pops something into your head. If that pops into your head, it doesn't mean you've sinned, friends. It means you're being enticed. It means you're being tempted to sin. It's only when you give into that thought and submit to it and agree with it and begin to dwell upon it that you have sinned. Every sin, in fact, starts with a thought. Every sin starts with a thought. But if you don't give in to this thought, you don't give in to these desires, then you have not sinned. And it's only when you sin, as it says here in verse 15, that death is brought forth into your life. But you don't have to do that. You can have a thought about someone that's improper. Whether it's a lustful thought, a hateful thought, a bitter thought, a thought of not giving them the benefit of the doubt. But if you don't submit to it, you take that thought we're going to see in a second. Captive, you have not sinned. In fact, let's just go to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now in context, he's talking about other people's thoughts, but if you can take everybody else's thoughts captive, what should you be doing with your own thoughts? You're taking those captive, right? It doesn't say just some thoughts. It says take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You need to guard your heart and guard your mind because every sin, as I said a second ago, starts as a thought. You need to guard your mind from new temptations by guarding your eyes and your ears. Every thought needs to be taken care of. So what I picture in my mind is when I see a rogue thought, so to speak, comes out, I take him and put him in a jail cell. Take him, handcuff him, 
put in a jail cell, throw away the key. If some some reason, at some point down the future, they break out of that jail cell, they get arrested again, get thrown back in a jail cell again. Because you're not going to rule and reign in my mind. The thoughts of Jesus Christ are going to rule and reign in my mind. In Proverbs 1, 19, Proverbs 119, verses 9 through 11, it says, How can a young man stay pure? By living according to your word. And then verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart, that it might not sin against you. Remember, going back to Jesus' example in Matthew 4, he had the word of God so hidden in his heart, that when the devil came and preached the word of God to him, he was ready. Can that be said about you? Could the devil fool you and twist the scripture in your heart and mind? That you'll be fooled? And of giving in a temptation? If you want to live pure, you must hide the word of God in your heart. How much scripture do you have memorized? How much have you hidden in your heart? If you find that a certain temptation is plaguing you, continues to tempt you, then I encourage you to find some scripture concerning that that very thing and memorize it and meditate upon it. In Joshua 1.8, God talking to Joshua, he said, Meditate upon this law day and night. Do not let it depart from your mouth, for then you'll keep every word in it. And so what do you think about when you wake up? What do you think about when you're going about your day? What do you think about when you're about to go to sleep? What do you talk about? If we think about and talk about the Word of God and meditate upon it as we should, we won't sin at all. We won't sin at all. It will always be fresh in our minds and on our lips so that when temptation comes, our first inclination is not to give in to it, but to overcome it, to submit, to resist, and obey. If you want a guideline of what your thought life should be like, turn to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. This tells you what your thought life should be like. If something doesn't fall into the qualifications found in Philippians 4 8, you shouldn't be thinking about it. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, there's any virtue, there's anything praiseworthy, meditate upon these things. Oftentimes when we're memorizing scriptures as a family, I have to ask the children, what does that word mean? Because there's big words sometimes I don't know the meanings to them. And so I'll ask Emily or Carrie Ann, what does meditate mean? And they'll say, think about over and over again. That's right. You need to think about God's word over and over again. Meditate upon it. Think about it. So these, this verse right here is a guideline of what thoughts to let roam in your mind freely and what thoughts to give a jail sentence to. Does your thought life match the standards given here? If not, you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself. Romans 13 and verse 14. <coughs> this is something that Brother Kevin was actually quoting earlier. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the left, for the flesh to fulfill it in his lust. This goes along with making boundaries for yourself. Because if you really don't want to sin, you're not just going to repent in brokenness and contrition. 
You're going to do what it takes to make sure that temptation doesn't come back into your life. You're going to set those boundaries. You're going to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill in this lust. You'll pluck out the eye. You'll cut off the hand. You'll cut off the foot. You'll do whatever it takes to overcome sin. You'll walk according to the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you want to be able to stand in the evil day, according to Ephesians 6, 10-13, you'll put on the whole armor of God. What would you think about a soldier who went off to war without all his armor? You'd think he was a fool. You'd think he was a fool. If he went out there without his sword, went out there without his shield, his helmet, his breastplate, his belt, you'd think he was a fool. He's a dead man. Dead man walking is what he is. And if you don't put on the whole armor of God, you're a dead man walking. You're just, a, you're just a walking target for the devil. That's what you are. So you must walk according to the Spirit, so you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. 1 Peter 5.8. You must be sober and vigilant. Because like I said, the devil is a lion prowling around to see who he may devour. Don't get ambushed. Don't get ambushed. Be on your guard. Now here's some thoughts I have about this, uh, about living holy. I've had in the past when I was working my way through this early on in my Christian life. I wouldn't want to live on earth if I couldn't escape sin. I would want to die and be utterly miserable if I had to keep on sinning. And there was a point in time early on in my Christian walk that I was taught that you couldn't stop sinning. And I was miserable. I didn't want to live. And I remember crying out to God with tears in my eyes. I was sincere. Why won't you make me stop sinning? That's what I cried out to him. And he said back in a still small voice, stop sinning yourself. Yeah, I need to stop sinning. I'm not without his help. But it's not his fault. I'm not, if I'm sinning, it's not his fault. It's my fault. So for me to ask that question presumes that it's his fault. And in essence, that's what everyone who believes in this false doctrine does. They're blaming God. They're blaming God. For the lack of the proper nature, for lack of the proper ability to live holy. Now living holy is not an easy life, but it is the right life and the only true life. In fact, the more you live holy, the more the devil, the world, and individual sinners will be against you the more against the flow you will go. Even though it isn't easy, what is the alternative, really? What is it? Everything else is death and slavery and, in the end, hell. There really is no good alternative, is there? Sin breaks God's heart and grieves Him very deeply. Sin sent Jesus to the cross, who died of a broken heart. God hates sin. He abhors it. It's an abomination to him. Sin is the reason that a terrible place called hell even exists. Sin hurts everyone around us, including God. It is a bad example to those who are watching and misrepresents God when you call yourself a Christian and engage in it. Should we engage in things that break God's heart? Should we continue to commit the very things that Jesus died to deliver us from? Should we spend time doing the things that God hates? Should we keep doing or go back to the things that will lead us to hell? 
Shouldn't we love God and our neighbors enough to stop hurting them? Shouldn't we love God and our neighbors enough to stop being a bad example and stop misrepresenting God? It makes no sense to be a perpetual sinner, friends. It's like a, someone being released from a jail cell and running back to it. That's what it's like. And it, it, it brings to my mind that those, those men who get out of jail and they commit a crime on purpose just to go right back to it. Because you know what? It's the easy life for them. To get out of jail for 10, 15 years and figure life out and try to get a job and try to work life out is difficult. And so is living holy. Sin may be the easy street now, but the end is not. Here's some warnings and dangers. I'm going to finish up with here. Warnings and dangers for you. Don't think you have arrived. Don't think you have arrived. You haven't. You have a long way to go. Well, you might only have one more day to go. But you may have a long way to go. Don't sit back and relax concerning your faith. Apathy will lead to lukewarmness and ultimately to your destruction. Don't minimize sin if you do sin. Just because we believe in perfection, friends, does that mean, like I said many times, you're, you're immune to temptation and possibly sinning in the future. And if you do sin, don't minimize it. Don't act as if you have not. Deal with it. Otherwise, you're in sin and you're breaking the very doctrine you say you believe in. The Word of God teaches. Every sin is serious. Every single one. Every single one. From gossip to homosexuality. From lustful thoughts to thinking wrongly about your brother and sister. If you were to sin in the future... Don't wallow in the mire. Don't wallow in the mire. You've got to get back up. If the devil has succeeded in having you sin, and breaking through and getting you to sin, the next thing he wants you to do is stay there. He would love that. And now he can take you to hell with him. He'd love for you to stay there. Do not re- don't, re- don't have a pity party. Get up. Repent and keep going. And know that if you truly have repented, God has forgiven you. God has cleansed you. There's no condemnation for you any longer. You have an advocate with the Father who cleanses from all unrighteousness, no matter how big or little it is. He cleanses from all. If you truly want, you know, there's a lot of people who I believe are true Christians. They're striving to live holy. They fall. They truly repent. They're contrite. They're broken. And then they fall again. Truly contrite, broken, and they fall again. It's not that their repentance isn't real. It's not that their contrition contrition isn't real or their brokenness isn't real. They're not setting up proper boundaries. You have to understand, friend, that's part of it. Don't think after you've repented and been broken before God, that's it, that's all there is to it, and you just walk on like nothing ever happened. You've got to set up boundaries. Do you really want to never do that sin again? That's what you'll do. You'll set up boundaries. There's lots of people, friends, who sincerely repent, but foolishly 
Do not set up the proper boundaries to ensure it does not happen again. I liken it to a castle that on one wall has a hole in it. An enemy comes and attacks that one wall. Bam, bam, and they get in. They make a bigger hole. And they get in, and then they're fought back out, and they can rest for a little while. And then they attack other walls, and they can't get through because those walls are fortified. They're strong. There's no holes in them. But they never go back and patch up that wall. You gotta patch up the wall, friends. You gotta patch up the weaknesses. You gotta strengthen them up so this enemy doesn't attack there again because he knows your weakness and he's gonna attack in that spot again eventually. He may wait a while to get you relaxed a little bit. You know, when they first break through the wall and they fight him back out, they might put extra guards there for a while. When they get attacked over here and over here and over here, and they send all their guards over there. And they don't build the wall back up. And that's what it's like for a person who truly repents, but has not set up the proper boundaries. Cut off the hand. Pluck out the eye. Cut off the foot. Anything that's causing temptation in your life, deal with it. I've counseled many men who I think are probably true Christians or have been at some point in time. They're dealing with something called pornography. Are they willing to cut off the internet altogether to get rid of the smartphone? To at least get an internet filter on their computer? Well, if they're not, then I have to conclude that you really don't want to stop sinning. If you really want it to stop, you'll do whatever it takes to get it to stop. Otherwise, you really don't want it to stop. There's people who have repented of drunkenness and then continue to hang out with their friends who will pressure them to get drunk again. There's people who will repent of fornication, but then stay in that relationship with someone who doesn't care to stop fornicating. Or maybe both people in that fornicating relationship repent of it, but they'll set up the proper boundaries, like having chaperones, not being alone, not touching at all, which leads to those kind of things. People repent of gambling, but then continue to live around casinos. People repent of lust, but keep watching filthy TV shows with filthy commercials. Or they go to the beach where there's immodest people all around them. You know, friends, when I first became a Christian, I had lots of sin I had in my life before I became a Christian. And I remember drunkenness being a strong pressure within me to go get drunk again. I was in the army. My drinking buddies were all around me. I couldn't escape them. We lived in the same building. Someone lived in the same room as me. And I had to, they would go out and get drunk. I had to stay home with my Bible. I had to do it. I had to force my, at first it was so hard. But I forced myself to stay home and read the Bible. After about six months or so, you know what? It wasn't so hard anymore. <laughs> that can truly tell you now that I have no temptation at all to get drunk. Yet, I will not let my guard down. See the trick there? See the scheme of the devil? If I were to stop before I said that last part, I'd be in trouble. Well, I'm not tempted to get drunk anymore. But I wasn't keeping my guard up. There comes the arrow. Here it comes. And as you, friends, as you overcome temptation and set the proper boundaries, it will become easier to overcome those temptations. Yet, once again, we don't let our guard down. But the other side of things, of it becoming easier, the other side is the more you give in to a certain temptation the more entrenched it becomes. The more enslaved you become. The harder it will become to finally overcome it if you do.
do. Yet, even people in those situations, the Son can still set you free. He can still set you free. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, what Kevin was saying from Colossians this morning, let us lay aside every weight in the same which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. That's it right there. That's a summary, summarization right there of, of almost like this whole teaching. They need to lay aside all those weights. Get rid of them. They're going to weigh you down to hell. It's easily ensnared. That's why you need to be careful. It's like walking through a minefield in these days. You need to be careful. It will ensnare you. But we need to run the race with endurance, and we do it by looking unto Jesus, who is the, not only the beginner, the author of faith, but the finisher, as long as we keep looking to him. As long as we keep looking to him. And we can do all things through Christ, who strengthens us. So take heed to these warnings, these dangers. Um, take these steps, the scriptures, seriously, to memorize it, to meditate upon it, to to hide it in your heart. Look at the examples around you. Realize that temptation is going to keep on coming. And they can be overcome every time. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. And don't give in to the lies of the devil that people use. They twist God's word to use. To support their lies. And try to convince you that you can't live holy. If you believe that, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. So I'm going to stop there and open the floor to questions, objections, or things we want to add. Okay, Joshua. Uh, I was just wondering what the Second Chronicles and the Kings verses were. Yes, First Kings eight forty six. Second Chronicles six thirty six. All right, and then um, the other thing was you said temptation is not causation; it is. And then I get didn't get the other part. Influence. Uh, influence. Okay, thank you. Yes. Okay, go Tracy. I haven't been here for a little while, so I'm not sure if you covered this or not, but have you ever covered uh, the stronghold that people like to use with Philippians 3.12? Sure did. Okay, you already covered that? Yes, sir. All right, praise the Lord. something we do before we fall so uh, that's that's thought I had on that okay. to, to uh, offer that to you to uh, 
song. Okay. And uh, a point that um, this really is the picking up of our cross is this doctrine, that, or this doctrine is the picking up of our cross daily, yeah. and following Him in this difficult, narrow way as we resist the world and our flesh and the desires of the flesh and the devil. Right. So, right. Amen. It's a Christian life. There is no other life.